Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Lindner. This week's show is a little different. We take a break from Adam or I uh, interviewing a guest, and we actually go back to a panel that, that Adam and I had done previously, uh, speaking around the, the future of blockchain in sports. Uh, this was a, a SPS panel, uh, a lunchtime panel uh, discussion that we did that, that really focused on the potential of blockchain in, in sports and sports media and sponsorship. And then beyond that, sort of the, the technical underpinnings of, of those pieces. You know, the blockchain has continued to be a prevalent topic uh, Topic in sports, and, and I'm sure it will continue to be that way uh, going forward. So we hope that you all enjoy this panel discussion around the future of blockchain and sports. As you mentioned, it, you know, there's a, a wide range of, of knowledge that, that sits up here. It, to my right or left, lies more of the technical knowledge. Um, uh, Alex, especially, and Adam, obviously having that data science background. But Adam and I, I, we are here to talk about the future of, of how blockchain will impact the sports industry and, and sort of business as a whole. And I think that Adam and I coming from, from different parts of, of sports, media, and entertainment, content consumption, have a, a different perspective on, on those pieces. Um, you know, there are lots of ways that we hear about blockchain today, and I think that sports is, is no exception. And, and there's many ways that, that it's going to impact it, and then hopefully we can touch on, on a lot of those today. I think that uh, one of the, the, the first pieces to really set a baseline of what we'll talk about is, is to sort of introduce blockchain as itself. There may be, how many people in here would say they're an expert on blockchain? <laughs> All right. How many people would say that they're somewhere in between an expert and a novice? Okay, that's good. How many people are a novice? Who knows nothing? Literally nothing. Okay, that's good. That's good, right? And I think that the reason that's really good is because it's still evolving. And the technology is, is pretty tried and true, but how it's applied to business and sports business, especially, is still evolving. And I think that that's what's interesting for all of us sitting in this room of how we can do that going forward. So we'll set a baseline of, of, around what blockchain is and sort of the ins and outs of that. Talk about its application to sports and how that could shape it going forward. And then leave room for some, some discussion, some open-ended questions about not only how it can be applied, but some of the legal, ethical, existential questions that, that come into that. So uh, as mentioned, to my right is much more of the technical knowledge. So I will let Alex talk about blockchain a, as a whole. Sure. So by far the most famous and most recognized application of blockchain is in cryptocurrency. It's in Bitcoin. I'm sure all of you have heard uh, Bitcoin this, Bitcoin that, especially earlier this year when Bitcoin famously crashed from $20,000 to you know, it's something like $7,000 now. Um, it is really important to understand, though, that cryptocurrency is not blockchain and blockchain is not cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency is based on blockchain. So the technology behind blockchain itself is fundamentally at a high level like a ledger. And each block is kind of like a record in that ledger. Uh, essentially, it is a distributed, meaning... Uh, passed on between lots of different places. Uh, secure, it's based on cryptographic hashing techniques, basically strong mathematics that keep it very safe. Um, databases, uh, that's fundamentally what they are. Records of transactions, ownership stakes, uh, and they are 
you know, they can be used to be um, pretty transparent at the same time. Everybody can theoretically see all of the records in that uh, in that database. Um, Briefly, I want to touch on a high level what makes them secure, and that's back to kind of the mathematical problems. Uh, there's, there are a set of in, pretty intractable for uh, current computing technology, um, a set of mathematical problems usually based around like integer factorization into prime numbers. I mean, um, they sound easy when you're dealing with numbers that might be three digits, four digits, even 10 digits long, but when you start getting up into, you know, a thousand digit prime numbers, it takes a, uh, a thousand digit prime numbers and then factoring even bigger numbers into those components, it takes computers a long time to do that. They are pretty inefficient. And so, you know, I just did some back of the envelope calculations before this using the entire power of the Bitcoin mining network, which keep in mind, I think at most recent estimates took about 1% of the global power consumption which is absolutely crazy, uh, it would still take longer than, you know, the universe has been around for 13 billion years, and it would take many, many orders of magnitude longer to break the encryption Bitcoin is based on um, by brute force methods. So for all intents and purposes, these things have the ability to be fundamentally secure. Um, so then we move on to like, what is a block? What is a chain? What like, what do these terms mean? Uh, so a blockchain is, a, funnily enough, a chain of blocks. Uh, each block has information about the previous block and then is securely hashed uh, into the next one. And you can, uh, each block has information about the transactions, the ownership stake about all of the places on the network, um, all of the nodes on the network. Uh, it's got information about how much you have, about how much I have, about who sent money where. Um, and Alex, I think this is a really interesting point, yeah. too, is that when we talk about the blocks that are in this blockchain, it's not just numbers that sit in them, right? There's information, correct? Correct. You don't have to just sit the numbers. A lot of people think of it as math and, and cryptography and all those pieces. It's not just numbers that sit in those blocks. Think of it in something, a great example that I saw was around supply chain management of diamonds. You know, diamonds is a, a hard thing to track. You want to do the legal and ethical pieces around it. But in that supply chain, you can track where it was mined, high resolution images of that, things around color, cut, clarity, all of those in each individual block. And then as Alex talked about, how it's, it's cryptographically stored. So, yeah, yeah, that's a great example. And a lot of people, particularly in high-risk things like supply chain management, they want to make sure all of that information, A, remains secure, and B, can't be, you know, further tampered with. So in a traditional ledger, uh, let's just say you had a book, uh, a row of records, rows and rows and rows of records. If I tear out page 40 and it just goes 38, 39, 41, Nobody then has any idea about what happened on page 40. Nobody knows, like, where, you know, back to the diamond example, where this diamond came, came, let's say we have some information, it came from, you know, Zimbabwe, and then we lose all the information, and somehow it ends up in Great Britain or in America. Uh, with techno technological blockchains, because of the secure hash and the reference to the previous block, we have an unbroken technologically secure chain all the way back to the primordial block, the very first, the very first block. So everything, it, it, it's called immutab immutability. Uh, it can't be changed once it's happened. 
So, yeah. Um, and, and then just building on what Alex said, you know, the, the main idea when you're talking about cryptocurrency or in general is this decentral, decentralization of the platform. The, um, the, the founder of, of Bitcoin, what is it, Satoshi? Satoshi. Or founders. Uh, or founders or whatever, <laughs> who's unknown at this point. The main thing he was trying to address is that when it comes to banking, that every central, you know, every transaction has to go through some kind of centralized banking platform which means whether it's the government or, you know, sometimes these payment services like PayPal have to monitor and charge you for a transaction. And using a decentralized platform, everybody can see every transaction. And you don't need to have somebody uh, evaluate whether the transaction actually occurred or not, or if somebody's paying twice for something. And the way to incentivize this public, and Alex can tell you more uh, about this uh, as we go through the process, but the way to do that is through uh, mining and computer mining, where computers basically have to solve the, these very complex, as Alex described, these very complex uh, uh, problems. And the first computer to do that is rewarded with whatever the current, you know, in the, it, whether it's Bitcoin or we'll talk more about Ethereum uh, later on uh, or, you know, either Bitcoin or a token or something that's valuable within the system so that it incentivizes people to actually do the mining. And the reason that 1% of the world's energy is focused on Bitcoin is that people want Bitcoins, right? Because they've, uh, accrued in value in a significant way. And just a story about that, uh, unfortunately for Alex, he bought very early into Bitcoin. Did you say 2010? 2010. Yeah, how, many did you, how much did you buy? I had 100 at about a dollar each, and I made the best investment of my life and sold them at uh, $40 each. Right. <laughs> and now, uh, now I'm sitting up here. Yeah. <laughs> instead of instead yeah. of on a beach somewhere. But how long was that first? Uh, um, that was probably over the span of a couple of months. Uh, the yeah, the, um, if I remember right, I probably got into them at like kind of the middle, maybe the middle of the year 2010, it might have been 2011, and then kind of the middle of the year after, uh, I think I sold. Um, actually, this is one of the interesting challenges around cryptocurrencies. Uh, in the very early days, you couldn't, there were no exchanges that you could easily access with American so you had to find interesting ways of liquidating them. And so actually, I ended up having to sell these on eBay, which, um, you know, is, is very time-consuming, very difficult. Um, the first real Bitcoin exchange or cryptocurrency exchange, it was called MTGOX. Um, actually, they just they declared bankruptcy a while ago. They got hacked. And that's the first time Bitcoin ever experienced a real crash. It went from $40 down to $0.06 cents almost instantly just because the only way people could exchange them for any kind of like, in any kind of financial way, just vanished overnight. Yeah. So there was, some, there was a yeah, question over there, but before we do that, Alex isn't the worst investor. They're the first <laughs> or the most famous Bitcoin or one of the most famous Bitcoin transactions is somebody paid 10000 Bitcoin for a pizza. Yeah. So whatever that pizza. was, so that pizza, that investment today, obviously, if you multiply whatever seventy five hundred times ten thousand, that's how much he spent on a pizza. So, <laughs> not anyway. delivering, not so Alex isn't the worst stuff. That person's not delivering pizzas anymore. Yeah. yeah. The question was around mining, the mining of the bitcoins, yeah. correct? And yeah. what are it, they mining prime numbers? So it's a little bit. Um, it's a. It gets a little bit technical. 
basically they're trying to solve, so Bitcoin is based on the SHA-256 algorithm, if I remember right. Mm -hmm. And that, I don't believe, is specifically related to prime numbers. I think that's actually based on a cipher. Um, essentially what happens is you're trying to find a viable solution to a mathematical problem. And the more difficult it gets to mine a block, the more difficult that problem becomes to solve and the more you know time it takes to the more time it takes so just the best way to think about mining without getting like too too deep into the technical details is they're trying to solve very difficult problems for computers to solve and the harder that problem gets the harder it gets to mine the more time it takes to mine the more energy required to mine etc yeah and essentially each transaction, each person has a public, particularly in this case, a public and private key. So what you're trying to figure out is using somebody's public and private key. So the, the public key is derived from the private key. So that way it's, it's and Alex, again, we'll know this better than I will, but it's, it's relatively easy, to, relatively to go from the private to the public key. It is almost or very, very, very difficult, if not almost impossible, to go from the public key to the private key. So your private key is basically like your signature, you do not want to give your signature away. Obviously, you do not want it to be copied or mimicked. Where the public key is kind of like your bank, in, in terms of money terms, is like your banking and account number, right? So somebody could see what that was. And the idea with mining is to see, can we confirm a transaction is taking place within the context of uh, whatever market or whatever uh, process you're looking at? So, so actually, I think this discussion, the questions and what we've been talking about is a really good kind of segue into like, what is a cryptocurrency more broadly? What defines a cryptocurrency and how does it relate to different, um, how does it relate to something like a Venmo or a PayPal? So there are, I would say, five real attributes of a cryptocurrency as opposed to a fiat currency or something that you know a country would print. Uh, so the first is that it's totally virtual. Um, fundamentally, these are bits on a computer. They are pieces of data. Uh, I can't go to the local bank and I can't give them a Bitcoin and they won't give me back gold. They won't give me back cash. A Bitcoin is, uh, a cryptocurrency in general is, you know, in, it's intrinsic to itself. Uh, the second thing is they are peer-to-peer. -peer. So it does not require the, a faith in an institution. It doesn't require uh, a bank. It doesn't require an intermediary. I can send Bitcoin or cryptocurrency anywhere I want, and the rest of the network will verify that transaction for me, um, which kind of brings it to the the third aspect. Which I think, Alex, is a good point on the peer-to-peer -peer piece. It's sometimes hard to conceptualize here, all of us sitting in this room in the United States of America, that the lack of trust in institutions. There are a lot of places around the world that people don't trust those banking institutions. They don't trust the, the governmental institutions. So it's it, there's a lot of applications. The creator of Ethereum is Canadian. And a lot of the applications are outside of, of you know, in developing countries and those pieces where the governments or the institutions aren't as trusted. So that's where that peer-to-peer -peer gets really, uh, you know, exponentially valuable. Actually, kind of on that note, if you look at exchanges in um, a lot of, like, previously war-torn African countries, like in, a, in a Zimbabwe, you'll see the price of Bitcoin is actually higher there than in countries like America. And I think a lot of that has to do 
um, with faith in the institutions. The cryptocurrencies don't require faith in the institutions in order to operate. Um, and part of the reason is the, the third aspect of a, of a cryptocurrency is that it's decentralized. Uh, there's no, uh, again, there's no intermediary, but then there, no one person can modify the ledger. No one person can change the blockchain. Everybody on the network has to agree. And so you'll, you'll start hearing about things like forking when uh, two people or two groups of people don't necessarily agree on the best future of the, of the blockchain or the best um, path for it to take. And so the chain remains unbroken, but it can still split in multiple different ways, but it's still decentralized. No one person ever has, in theory, control of the network. Um, fourth, they are theoretically anonymous. Uh, some cryptocurrencies more so than others. There's a famous story of uh, the Silk Road, which was kind of the first real way of using Bitcoins illegally. Um, you could buy things like drugs and guns and all sorts of bad stuff on, on the, the dark web. Um, and famously, the FBI, I, I think it was the FBI, managed to figure out who, they managed to track his particular public address back to him. So they are theoretically anonymous, but you know there can be some practical considerations for that. And some cryptocurrencies... Um, are better at it than others, but that's another consideration. Um, and then last, they are theoretically secure. Um, you know, obviously we just talked a little bit about how they managed to reverse engineer the guy's identity, but um, the mathematical algorithms behind them are also theoretically secure, kind of going back to that, the power it would require to, the power and time it would require to just totally break um, those algorithms, uh, the, the cryptographic hashing algorithms, they are, for all intents and purposes, secure unless there is a fundamental vulnerability, whether it, that's in the source code or somewhere else. Yeah, and we've obviously spent a lot of time talking about cryptocurrency because, again, that is the most commonly used uh, part of this. Uh, we've mentioned Ethereum up here. Ethereum is, uh, is not necessarily currency. It's a peer-to-peer -peer contract network. So the idea is you could send any type of contract across that. Uh, Bryce mentioned, you know, a supply chain management, but one of the things that, you know, moving from cryptocurrency more commonly would be used as some form of what's called a token. Um, one example, it's just anything that would have value that could be traded. One example people have used, although you can correct me if I'm wrong, is like if you wanted to trade frequent flyer miles, you could trade frequent flyer miles on the Ethereum network. Ethereum, the whole concept behind it is to create this decentralized platform where you can exchange whatever it is you want to exchange on the, current, on the platform. It does look like, as you can see, people are getting lunch yeah. too, so feel free to, yeah. we don't want to keep you from eating either, yeah. so feel free to go grab one. So one thing I actually, to build on the Ethereum piece I saw yesterday was it, some apartments are doing rentals through using smart contracts that are on the Ethereum blockchain to say, if, you're, if you meet these conditions, pay the deposit, you get a you the key is unlocked you have the keys to the apartment the 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 rent comes at certain times all those conditions are met so it's a way to do that without some intermediary that's in between so you see the potential of those things in in lots of different applications i think that you know one of the things that we're here to talk about today is obviously in blockchain as a whole and as alex and adam mentioned cryptocurrency is one that is very prevalent we see that a lot but but how does that apply to sports right and you're thinking about that 
if you start to think about all the things we've just talked about and how it can apply to sports, there's lots of different ways that you can apply it to sports. The number one, which Adam will dig down into a bit, is tickets. And just sit and think about how you could do the, uh, the chain of command, the transparency in tickets. Um, but other things that, that really come into play that could use the blockchain in a sports setting are things like uh, content consumption of sports content. We'll talk more about that. Sponsorship, which Adam and Alex have a, a vested interest in and also experts know more than, than just about any around how sports sponsorship can be valued and, and uh, it increases value for teams and sponsors alike. But also things from a, a sports perspective like loyalty schemes and, and teams doing their own coins to incentivize fans. Anti-doping. Uh, the ability to have that transparency into the testing um, from a doping perspective, and then performance metrics and analytics and statistics. Uh, you know, we talk a ton about data science and and those types of things, but there's our applications of this in that. And so, and one of the biggest examples that we we've talked about, or or if you think about, it, is ticketing. And and Adam and, and Alex had a recent blog post. Uh, who have actually their website block6analytics.com. They have a great blog that has a ton of different uh, items. <laughs> Um, but recently had a blog post around how blockchain it could change the, the ticketing market. Yeah, so uh, one more thing just on the mining part of it, so in sports. So the Sacramento Kings became the first team to have um, to mine for cryptocurrency, apparently in the basement of the Golden, is it Golden One Center? Or something? The basement of their arena, they're mining for cryptocurrency right now. So, um, you know, just in an application to sports context, You'll see more, you might see more and more of that stuff because, A, sports, uh, just in general, sports organizations are looking for new ways to diversify revenue streams and being able to mine for, uh, you know, doing these types of uh, blockchain mining, whatever that, for now, for cryptocurrency, is something that sports teams are taking a look at. But uh, the primary way that people think about blockchain and sports right now is through ticket sales. So, uh, one of the primary things with ticket sales is there's a primary market and a secondary ticket market. The primary market is when the team sells you the ticket. And more and more commonly, people are buying tickets on the secondary market, my, myself included. Uh, I recently uh, bought a ticket to the, I probably shouldn't be saying this at a Northwestern event, but I recently talk, uh, bought a ticket for the Northwestern Duke game at a, close to the field at nine, I think it was $9 per ticket, which was not what the face value was. And that's the idea behind the secondary ticket market, that the primary ticket market, the team sets the price. They are using um, more and more frequently what's called dynamic ticket pricing to look at different variables and try to set different prices for different games based off the demand. The secondary ticket market has been much more, so far to date, has been more successful at doing that. So if you think about you know, StubHub or SeatGeek, um, those are the most commonly used secondary ticket markets. The problem from a team perspective is when tickets enter the secondary market, or even if you're just giving your ticket to your friend, is often very difficult to track where the ticket is going or who's using the ticket. And a lot of sports teams don't even know who's in their actual building. And that's a big problem. We'll talk about it from a, a sponsorship uh, perspective is like not knowing who's in your building means you can't communicate that value to sponsors. But the team wants to, the team, even from a ticketing merchandise um, or concession perspective, they want to know who's entering the building so that they can uh, target uh, those people, particularly people who are using tickets, who are not season ticket buyers, because they are more likely to purchase tickets in the future if you've seen that they've actually used your tickets. But if you have no idea if they're entering the stadium or not, then it's impossible for uh, a team to really understand who their fans are. What block the, the idea behind blockchain, and this is where a lot, if you're talking about investment in sports right now, 
uh, when it comes to blockchain outside of gambling, which we can talk about also. But uh, with tickets, that's the, the primary thing right now is tickets, because in theory, based on like what Alex was saying, having a decentralized platform where you could evaluate every single transaction, even if there were a secondary market, if you used a blockchain technology, then you could see every time somebody, every time a ticket is sold. And every time a ticket is sold, then you could see who that person, at least the public key or a version of that person was, who entered your arena. And that would fundamentally, teams then could know who's entering the arena, they can know who's selling their tickets, they can understand if there's counterfeiting going on, um, and they would be able to track that in a much clearer way. And then they, in, and we'll talk about this maybe more on the legal and ethical perspective, they then would be able to track and show to other people, whether it's marketers, sponsors, companies, who are the people that are actually coming to the arena, uh, when they're coming to the arena, uh, how frequently they've used tickets, how many times they've used the primary market versus the secondary market. There's all sorts of data that you could get in, in theory from the market. Um, and also being able to uh, see what's going on and capture more of the value of tickets is something that's a primary concern to teams right now. I think something you said was probably one of the most direct and immediate um, applications of blockchain about the security. Um, you know, I, I, if I want to buy a ticket on Craigslist, how do I know that that's right. a real ticket? If I see a ticket for one-tenth of the face value, how do I know right. it's a real ticket or somebody who just really needs to liquidate that ticket? Um, with, with blockchain, yeah. you can ensure that that's a real exactly. ticket. Um, and, you know, this is kind of an open question. It comes to implementation details, but how do you release tickets uh, on on a blockchain, do you use a cryptocurrency? Does one token equal one ticket? Right. Does you know is there some novel implementation that we should think about? But you know, demographics are important. Figuring out who's got your tickets right. is important. But you, just from a fan, a user perspective, being able to have trust that what you are buying is real. Is is I think pretty invaluable yeah. for any any sports. So team. yeah, exactly. And teams have implemented some things on that front. So one of the things that Major League Baseball is doing in particular, I mean, if people have been to airports and use, um, you know, uh, expedited security screening, they, you may have seen Clear as one of the expedited security clearance. And the idea with Clear is that they can scan your face or scan your body, and then automatically know if you're on the approved list or not. Teams are starting to use that as well as a way to implement and figure out what's going on. Uh, again, the problem with that is that you actually either have to, teams have to buy clear, you have to opt in to clear, uh, you have to be on their list, there's extra cost. Um, so even then, and you still don't know, even if the person is using a ticket, how they got the ticket in the first place is still a problem. And that goes back to Alex's initial point. One of the, one of the things that StubHub and SeatGeek had to originally deal with is this counterfeit issue. So right now, StubHub and SeatGeek guarantees every ticket or you get your money back. The problem is, for a lot of fans, is like, even if I can get my money back, I still don't get to go to the game, right? So that's a huge, that is a huge problem. And recently, that happened, and I forgot what the event was, but 65 people who bought tickets on uh, SeatGeek or StubHub, got, well, they got their money refunded, but they got counterfeit tickets and they weren't able to go to the game. And at a time when sports organizations are really struggling to get people to come to the venue, if people are at the venue and then they can't get in, obviously that is not an ideal scenario. So they want to make sure that they can really understand who's using the tickets. And, and in no uncertain terms, um, blockchain lets you trace the lineage of that ticket all the way back to the arena that issues it. So this is, I, yeah. I would think that this is one of the most immediate 
and most useful and most low, kind of the lowest hanging fruit of all. Yeah, for sure. Um, from for blockchain and sports. And I think that for many of those reasons, right, the the ability, the security that you know you're buying something, as Adam mentioned, the security of, you know, stadiums, especially in football, college football, have you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people in the same place at once. There's a, an obvious level of physical security that's involved in that. So there, as Adam mentioned, clear, there's a company called Rival that was started by the former CEO of Ticketmaster that's working to do uh, tickets that are... Uh, blockchain base, but then also biometric scanning when you enter the venue to ensure that you are that person that purchased that ticket. But then the other piece that Adam mentioned on the secondary market, you see tickets going for less value. The flip side is a lot of times today, the secondary market has priced out the average fan, right? And so the ability for a team to issue those tickets and have the face value, right? The last time you bought a ticket at face value. It's not very often, right? Whether that's lower or higher, and a lot of times in Chicago, Chicago is a great sports city. So a lot of times tickets are much higher than the face value. That often comes because of the secondary market. Yeah. And so the ability to have the teams issue those tickets and the, the transparency and the, the sort of chain of command allows that ticket price to stay constant and we can start to not price out the average fan and get get more fans in the in the venue. Yeah, I mean, actually, we'll talk about uh, and Bryce in particular, um, counterfeit, counterfeiting or illegal activity in media is probably an even bigger challenge in sports where blockchain could be a solution. And we'll talk about that in more detail because illegal stream or, or piracy of sporting events, given how much um, media companies are paying to for the right to broadcast sporting events. Um, so just as a context, the NFL teams right now from their uh, – Distribution agreements get something like 225 to $250 million a year. Every NFL team gets that amount of money. Uh, and their player, uh, the salary cap, last I think, is between $170 $180 million, right? So if, if there's a compromise of the media piece where people can start accessing uh, illegal streams for free, whether domestically or globally, that becomes a huge uh, problem from a, uh, a huge problem for the biggest revenue source for a lot of teams, particularly in the big four sports. But the other thing that the, the biggest issue or one of the biggest issues with uh, blockchain technology in sports is the fact that it is technology. Uh, the sports industry is notoriously slow for adapting technology. The reason that StubHub and SeatGeek exist is because sports organizations were very slow to adapt to dynamic ticket pricing, very slow to adapt to a secondary market. They've subsequently tried to enter the secondary ticket market with varying degrees of success. Uh, they partnered with Ticketmaster at times to try to capture the value. Uh, but what they found is that the, you know, it's that they're not, typically sports organizations are not gonna be first movers when it comes to any new technology. And particularly given the, the only real way that they've seemed to have entered that space is through sponsorship, where either players or teams or athletes like cryptocurrency companies wanna sponsor sports teams to reach those demographics. Mm. Whether they will implement the technology or it will take them a really long time to even consider the technology uh, as an open question. I think it is unlikely that even though that crypto could be, as Alex has talked about, crypto, uh, I mean, uh, uh, blockchain technology could really fundamentally alter one of their key revenue streams, which is ticketing, and yet they still will be slow to adapt it, even though that is something that could have a direct and immediate impact. Which I think is a fundamental uh, 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 
open space for everybody sitting in this room. Adam and Alex alike are, are examples of people that took advantage of sports slowly adopting different technologies and, and creating a, a business that that helps value sponsorships from a sports perspective and from a uh, the sponsors themselves and, and, and activation in those. But there will be plenty of business opportunities for people to do uh, different things around ticketing and or content consumption, the security pieces that, that leverage blockchain. Adam mentioned content. In my day-to-day job, um, I work at an interactive media company and we, in, I guess as an example, we create the technology that power services like a Hulu or an HBO Go or an HBO Now, those types of services. And Adam mentioned content today, currently in America, there are 639 television shows in development. It's a lot of content, right? But what's the most valuable content? What do you still watch live? Exactly. Which makes sports the most valuable content in the world. Because it's appointment television. Still, to this news in sports and the Oscars are kind of the only thing that is really watched live. And because of that, it, the value of that is, is extremely high for not only the, the leagues and teams themselves, Adam mentioned the, the revenue that comes in from that, but also the broadcasters of, of that content. So it, it's a really interesting dichotomy in that today, cable companies have a stranglehold on how content is distributed. That may start to shift, and when that does start to shift, content can be delivered in different ways directly from that original content creator, done through more advanced means like using blockchain. And, it, and how that can be done, it really gives the security around it to know that you are this person that purchased this content in a microtransaction or whatever it may be. You are the person that is watching this content. This content isn't being recorded and, and rebroadcast somewhere else. So it gives those teams and leagues and the broadcaster of that content the security that it, the content is going where it's supposed to. On the flip side, as a consumer, lots of us pay cable companies, mm-hmm. Comcast, Time Warner, Dish, DirecTV, lots of money. There may be a future world, we can hope, that you could buy those things directly in a, in a sort of microtransaction piece, right? To say, I want to I watch the Colts and, and, the, and the Ravens this weekend. And I can buy that directly, something done through blockchain to say Bryce has the, you know, the key to watch this specific content. Sports is different in the sense that it's extremely valuable and everyone is compensated on all ends of that chain. But when you get to other types of content, a lot of those creators aren't compensated as well as they should be because they have to go to different distributors, whether it be a YouTube for some people that are creating their own content, uh, television shows, the writers and those pieces. If you cut out those intermediaries that are there, those content creators, the talent involved, have the ability to garner more of the revenue because they are uh, can do it directly. And I think that some of these things from a content perspective, Adam and what they do at, at Block 6, it, it's a real, opens a really big opportunity from a sponsorship perspective because that will be one of the main revenue drivers because advertisements may fall out. Yeah, and uh, if, you, if you are curious a little bit more about this, like uh, Bryce said, it, it, I do have it, uh, a little bit more detail in a, a blog post. Um, so again, the co- my company's name, uh, or our company's name, uh, Block 6 Analytics, unfortunately not Blockchain 6 Analytics because <laughs> it's probably more valuable, but um, the, the main idea is, um, just as, again, context, so ESPN... Just the ESPN primary channel charges right now $7.99 per month per subscriber. At its peak, ESPN had 100 million cable and uh, satellite <laughs> subscribers. So if you just multiply eight times, uh, uh, eight times 100 million times 12 months, 
right? That's something like $9.6 billion a year from subscriptions, right? And so, you also think about your cable bill being $100 a month, seven ninety nine right. of that, just for ESPN. And right, and these regional sports networks, most famously the Los Angeles Dodgers, whether it was through Time Order, and I think now through Spectrum, um, have a, a deal where the Los Angeles Dodgers, for their local broadcast, signed a 25-year agreement for somewhere between $7 and $8 billion over the life of that agreement. So if you're talking about, again, if if this is could be disrupted, obviously this is a potentially an issue. Uh, as Bryce was saying, and this is where something like Ethereum, not necessarily Ethereum, but something like Ethereum, where if you can send a micro, essentially a contract, where your acceptance of the contract is essentially your payment for the uh, streaming or a payment for the content, that way, you, instead of, you, instead of uh, w- the reason that they're called broadcast networks, right, is basically television, like NBC, CBS, Fox, right? They broadcast a signal to as many, and as many people as who can hook up either your uh, either cable TV or even over-the-air networks, as many people as it can pick up the signal could watch. Rather than doing that, you could, as the uh, content provider, could just provide it to the people who want to pay for it. And that potentially, again, could disrupt the cable uh, system because... Right now, cable companies depend on you buying every customer paying for these regional sports networks and paying for the ESPNs. In theory, right, if the customer can figure out a way and the companies can figure out a way, there are certain companies that will do better. There are certain companies that do worse. But again, you'll be able to track every one of those transactions from a media perspective. And one of the biggest issues that comes up, and for people who watch sports, particularly uh, if you watch golf uh, over the weekend, if you watch Tiger Woods win, over the weekend, one of the things that they've had they've changed is these ad breaks, right? So rather than going away from the content, they the rather than going away and having a traditional television commercial, they're pairing it side by side. And the reason they're doing that is to better monetize the content, right? So they can sell advertising in addition to selling the subscription. Particularly if you're NBC, right? You, NBC does not have subscription revenue on its main network. The only way or primary way it generates revenue is through advertising. Yet that disrupts the content, it disrupts the experience, it disrupts what the audience member wants. Elongates the broadcast. And and causes the broadcast to be longer, exactly. And more and more frequently, people want a shorter amount of time. So the NBA is already starting to experiment with something like this, where now you can actually just buy the fourth quarter of a game. So if you only wanted to watch the fourth quarter of a game, you could watch that for 99 cents per game, I think is the price point. But the idea is like, that is going to become more and more common, and if blockchain technology can adapt or can make that come to fruition so that you are delivering something that the customer wants in more detail, that's helpful. Now, that is obviously a problem if you are an advertiser or if you're a company that relies on advertising. So this is, and this is something that Alex, uh, you know, he's developed our image identification platform in video, but having branded content in a, or having a branded integration into content is a pretty controversial topic. So right, if you're drinking Diet Coke right now. If all of a sudden I started drinking a Diet Coke and we were filming it, like, am I being paid we to do that? Filming. Well, that's true. Good point. <laughs> uh, and, you know, those types of brand integrations, the, uh, sometimes they work well. So, like, when James Corden does carpool karaoke and they just happen to go to McDonald's, that wasn't by accident. McDonald's paid for him to go, to, to, uh, to go there as part of the video. Um, but where sports particularly has an advantage is that sports has already established the fact that there it will be branded content in the terms of logos, particularly on signs near uh, the court or near the ice or near the field or jersey patches. So that is already baked into the experience. So it could be, or one of the theory, one of our theories is it's possible that 
that type of branded content integration when it comes to um, logo activations within video will become increasingly valuable because that might be the primary or one of the primary ways you could actually advertise in sports content, which we've defined as lucrative content that generates a high audience. And if you're going to move away from traditional ad breaks or advertising or advertising supported model altogether, that's an interesting application of blockchain and where it could go. Yeah. I like a world where you can pay $1.99 to watch an NFL game on Sunday with no commercials and the only activation is through the sponsorships that someone like Block 6 and, and Adam and Alex, they monitor and can help value those pieces. And I think it works well from a consumer perspective, from a content creator perspective. It does cut out some people in the middle of the chain. Um, yeah. Those people have made money for a very long time, and I think they can adapt in many ways, but it's a really interesting application of, of, of how those things could work from a content perspective. So, so a lot of what, I'm, what I've thought about and, and I'm hearing from you guys is that a lot of the applications, the, the good applications of blockchain technology come around the business of sports mm -hmm. and not as much as like the on-field. Um, it just seems like you know, two totally unrelated things, blockchain and sports. When I, when I heard about it, I was like, how do those things work together? But if you start thinking kind of A, outside the boundaries of cryptocurrency, B, outside the boundaries of in the game, on the field, yeah. uh, there are a lot of opportunities around ticketing, around content, around security, around, <laughs> you know, advertising, any real supply chain management, all of the best opportunities seem to be in the business of yeah. sports. And I, I think that kind of leads into some good open questions mm -hmm. about like what what are the practical applications of blockchain? Can we not pigeonhole it for every use case? Can we identify the yeah. right use cases with, you know, legal, ethical, moral constraints, practical constraints, and really only use the right technology in the right places. Yeah, so I think actually, we, t we mentioned this earlier, but the biggest on-field use of blockchain would be gambling, right? So sports gambling is something that obviously with the repeal of uh, PAPSA, which was the legislation that banned sports betting except in Nevada and some cases in New Jersey, um, now more and more states are enabling that to start with, actually, it's not allowed. You, you can't even, in a lot of states, bet mobily. Like, you have to go to a casino or go to a place, that a, a licensed operator of gambling. In the future, that will definitely change. What that opens up with gambling, and going to what Alex was saying from the ethical implications of on-field performance, is more and more frequently, athletes are wearing these devices that track, from a medical performance perspective, information, you know, whether, what is, you know, in the NFL, how much contact have they taken, how... Uh, how much sweat are they producing? That's not just the NFL, but um, there's all these different athletic biomarkers, how much sleep how much sleep they're getting. In theory, again, from a blockchain perspective and from a legal and ethical perspective, you could sell that information, right? If the players' unions allowed for you to do that and the players' unions would get their fair cut of the money in addition to the league, you could create an opportunity to sell that information um, in a blockchain-type environment or through an Ethereum-type environment where the information is the thing that is of value, right? And the information could then be used for gambling. Um, more frequently, so that is one kind of ethical, what, should athletes be selling that information? Should we be tracking that information? Should we be looking at people's medical history? Should we be, you know, Alex is saying, should we be able to unwind potentially somebody's public or private or public key to figure out who they are? Uh, that is all stuff we can definitely talk about. And we want to leave some time for questions. We're running towards the end of, of the process. But 
Um, so that's a little more esoteric, but the main thing from a gambling perspective is the, one of the reasons that PAPSA was in place to begin with is that betting is a, at least thought of as a very murky industry where the markets are made by bookies, and it's not always clear if you make a bet that you're actually going to get the money from that transaction back. It's not clear where the transaction goes. It's not clear um, if it's being done by organized crime. Um, there's just a lot of issues with sports betting, uh, and the reason that... Um, Right, the reason that it was banned is that the idea is that, uh, and then the last thing from an on-field perspective is that athletes would bet on themselves or use inside information to bet on themselves. Uh, this issue is still an issue now with sports gambling being legal. There is no way at the moment to prevent a athlete to tell their friend to say, hey, this guy is injured, go bet for me on this, and their friend can go and bet on it. There is actually, at the moment, and maybe there is a, we could talk. I don't know if there's a blockchain solution to that or not, but probably not. But there, there. That's one of the issues too. Is that, and this happened at Northwestern actually directly. Northwestern was caught in a point shaving scandal on its own, where a player was shaving points because they were not paying, because he wanted to make extra money, and that opens up another door. Is if you're going to allow betting in college sports and you can track the bets more frequently, should college athletes be paid for their content for their information? So it opens up this whole world of questions. That blockchain, as Alex said, blockchain is not the cure-all for all of these problems. There's certain things where it'll work well and certain things where it won't work well. But by far, and you can even if you just looked up blockchain and sports right now on your phone, the biggest thing that will come up will be gambling and what the impact on gambling will be. Yeah, gambling and tickets are the two big things. I think that, that as Adam mentioned, there's a lot of open-ended questions, and Alex mentioned mentioned earlier, implementation details. I think how these things are implemented yeah. and the specific use cases that are found will be really interesting. There's a lot of open-ended questions, you know, things like, do we pay athletes in cryptocurrency? Can you buy a beer with Bitcoin at, at a stadium? Yeah, all questions that are going to be answered, but I think the goal of today for us was to show one, a complex technical concept that doesn't have to be that complex that can be applied to something that we all know and love, the sports. And I think that there's a lot of really practical applications to sports for this complex technical concept that's maybe not as complex as we think that are starting to come into the market, but will continue over the next you know, five to 10 years in, in